The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. Come to you now, Lord. This is uh, not a hard passage of Scripture. The message to us, I think, is clear and obvious, but it's really hard to live out in our lives. And so I ask for your help. I ask for your help on me as, as I preach it and on your people as they hear it and that the words you've given me would be the words that would um, move into the hearts of your people to accomplish your work and that you would receive the glory. So help us now to dive deep into your word and have it feed our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's been emphasized again and again as we've marched through 1 Peter here together that we're witnessing a dramatic shift in our culture from a society where Christianity is seen as a force for good and righteousness to one where it's seen as out of step or on the wrong side of history or even as a threat to the peace and stability of our culture. It's disorienting and sometimes frightening to be living through. It's a whole change in what many of us grew up with. Well, this seems to be the very situation that Peter is speaking to in his letter. And we've seen this all through our study so far. So Peter has been exhorting his readers to hold fast to the faith in the midst of persecution. And at the time of the writing, most commentators feel that what, he, what he's referring to is not the kind of persecution that we might think of. Uh, it's more like soft persecution. So no one was being imprisoned yet in that culture. No one was being burned at the stake or beheaded. But Christianity was a new and somewhat radical religion in the midst of a polytheistic, morally corrupt society in Asia Minor at that time. And Christians were considered weird and strange, and thus they were subject to mocking reviling, ostracism, and in our increasingly post-Christian culture, don't we find ourselves in a very similar place? So Peter sees his main theme as preparing these people to suffer. He wants them armed with the right attitude, focused on their new identity in Christ, their calling to a new way of living, and their place as strangers and aliens in this world, heading toward their real home. And this is what makes the letter, I think, so important to us right now. Now, we don't have to have some martyr complex, but the fact is that we ought to be preparing to suffer and to respond to that suffering in God-glorifying ways. And if we don't prepare our hearts for that ahead of time, we're not going to respond right in the moment. So last week we saw, when Dave was speaking on the previous passage, we saw that Peter told us not to respond to evil with evil. Vengeance is not the way. God is the only one who knows all and can make perfect judgments and take vengeance properly. So how do we respond? We respond by blessing in return. So when others speak ill of us, we speak well of them. How have you done on that, on applying that this week? <laughs> when others criticize us and mock us, we respond by finding only good things to say about them. 
We fight evil with good. And then he gave us a motivation for doing that. We'll be blessed. If you bless others, you will be blessed. And that led him to quote Psalm 34, which gave a scriptural ground for expecting that kind of response. But now we come to a question in verse 13, and I think this question links what he just quoted from Psalm 34 with the passage we're going to talk about today. So here's his question. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And the answer ought to be no one, right? It ought to be a rhetorical question. No one ought to harm us for doing good. I mean, why would anyone mock you or revile you or ostracize you if you're working hard to do good? <laughs> and thankfully, most of the time, people don't harm us for doing good. But I think the answer to that changes if cultural concepts of good and evil shift so that what you're doing and saying now is not considered good. It's considered evil or harmful toward others. And I think that's what we're seeing in our day. As our culture shifts, things like insisting on Jesus being the only way to God or living out a, moral, a biblically moral life, they're seen as wrong, detrimental to one's psychological health and self-esteem, harmful to others, even discriminatory and evil. And a God who would send people to an eternal hell is seen not as just and righteous, but as a moral monster unworthy of worship. That's the kind of culture we're living in. So in this culture, like the one Peter was writing to, the answer might, to this question might just as easily be lots of people. Lots of people might seek to do us harm for doing what God says is good. So does that negate the truth of Psalm 34? Are we sometimes not blessed for doing good? I think what Peter says in verse 14 is his answer to that question. He says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. That's interesting. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll still be blessed. Now, what's he mean by that? The word used for blessed here, it's different than the word used in verse 9. It literally means happy. So there's a promise of joy in the midst of trial here. It's the same word that Jesus uses in each one of the Beatitudes. In fact, Peter seems to be borrowing some phraseology from Jesus' wording. If you look at Matthew 5.10, Jesus said this, Blessed, okay, insert the word happy there, Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, that's a radical upside-down statement. And, and Jesus gives us a reason for that. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can be happy when you're persecuted because you're of a different kingdom, and that reveals that you're of a different kingdom. You're a citizen of a different place. And then Peter also exhorts us not to fear or be troubled by this. These, these kind of commands through Scripture not to fear always, it's like, how do we do that? How do we just decide not to be afraid? There's, there's got to be something we can do to help us in that. We don't just make a conscious decision not to be afraid. But what Peter is saying here is our response to suffering is to be a joyful fearlessness. A joyful fearlessness. 
Now, frankly, that's a hard principle to apply. In fact, I even have trouble getting my mind around it because if I'm mistreated, if people are reviling me, well, you know what? I'm an American and I have rights. And if people speak evil of me or falsely accuse me or slander me, I should defend myself and return fire. Injustice must be resisted and demolished. I should stand up for my rights. I should not be happy about that kind of treatment. I should be angry. I'm right to be angry. Now, if we're honest, that's probably the instinctive response in all of our hearts when we're mistreated. It's not a joy response. It's actually a fear response, but that is the response most of us tend to lean toward. Indeed, most all trial and hardship that comes into our lives tends to elicit this kind of fear-anger response. And amazingly, the scriptures tell us time and time again that's the wrong response. So I want to ask two questions of this text. Why? First one is a why question. Why should we be happy and not fearful when suffering comes? And the second one is how do we fight against fear and for joy in the midst of trials? And I think this passage gives us answers to those questions. They're not the only answers. Scripture is full of answers to these two questions, but it gives us an important one. And so the rest of this message is going to focus in on this central issue, the lordship of Christ and the apologetic of suffering. That's the title of the message. That's the main focus I want us to zero in on. And I want to make the case that the key, the key to fighting for joy and against fear in suffering is the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives and that when we see him for who he is, it not only equips us to respond joyfully and fearlessly to suffering, but that response will also be the best defense of the faith, the best apologetic. So let's take the second question first, the how question. How do we do that? How do we fight for joy and fearlessness in the face of suffering? Well, that fight begins with sanctifying Christ as Lord in your hearts. Peter says it right there. That's the contrast of fear. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now, that's the New American Standard Version. I, I don't really like the way the ESV translates this. There's no real word for honor there in the Greek that you see. But there is a word for holy. There is the Greek word for holy. And it simply means set apart or sanctify. That's where we get the word sanctify from. So I like the New American Standard translation better. It just says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now, whenever you read something like that, I hope you're like me and you should ask, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it means that you should set Jesus Christ apart as Lord over everything in your life. Now, I'm not really sure we understand that much in our day, especially in our culture where individual autonomy seems to reign supreme. Uh, many years ago, it was common teaching that Christians needed to make Jesus Lord of their lives. Some of you might be, have been around long enough to remember that. Uh, I, don't, I don't hear that teaching much anymore, and frankly, I never liked it because we don't make Jesus Lord of anything. 
okay? He is Lord, whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not, whether we bow to that truth or not, he is Lord. So the Lordship of Christ, we don't make him Lord, he is Lord. But here's what I do like about that. It got us to focus our attention on what the Lordship of Christ really means in our lives. And sadly, I don't hear much talk about that anymore. It seems that concepts that are borrowed more from pop psychology have replaced the concept of the Lordship of Christ. So Jesus now exists to bring us peace and fulfillment in our lives. He desires, he desires us to become all that we can be, to follow our hearts, to reach our greatest human potential, to live our best life now. Now this, of course, necessitates that we feel good about ourselves. And frankly, suffering just doesn't really comport with that kind of theology. A lot of scholars have used the term moral therapeutic deism to describe this kind of thinking. So Jesus becomes more of our therapist than our Lord and Savior. But in our text, the Lordship of Jesus Christ is placed right at the center as the key to finding this joy and fearlessness in the midst of suffering. So we better know what it means to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. I've got a sampling of scripture texts and they're gonna come up um, on the screen if you're watching at home and on the screen here because I'm gonna read through them really fast and if you wanna look them up later, go ahead so the scripture references will be on the screen. But I just went through and selected 11 texts just 11. I could have picked a lot more. There's plenty more. 11 texts to kind of give us a picture of what it means for Jesus to be Lord of our lives. So here we go. I'm just going to read through them. You can jot them down. It means Jesus and his kingdom is the treasure that will sell everything else to buy. Matthew 13:44. It means we deny ourselves take up our cross and follow him. Mark 8:34. It means being spiritually awake, alert and looking for his coming. Luke 12:40. Did you wake up this morning alert and looking for his coming? Was that the first thought on your mind? It wasn't on mine. It means loving Jesus more than your own family or even your own life. Luke 14:26. It means Jesus is more necessary to you than food and drink. He is the bread of life, John 6:35. It means we keep Jesus' commandments, John 14:15. Obedience is not an option if Jesus is Lord. We, we've gotten this idea that obedience is an option in the Christian life. It means we are not conformed to this world, but we present our bodies and our minds to be renewed according to his will, Romans 12, 2. It means we're not our own. We've been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. It means we do everything we do, even eating and drinking, to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. It means being crucified with Christ, and we no longer live for ourselves, but for him. Galatians 2.20. It means we count everything else in our life as loss in comparison with the value of knowing Christ. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. 
That's just a sampling. Just a sampling. So I hope it kind of starts to form a picture in your mind of what it means that Jesus is Lord of our lives. We could go on and on. Now, I'm going to be the first to admit, I don't live this perfectly. You aren't going to live it perfectly. And sometimes that making Jesus Lord theology kind of tended to make us think that we could just pray a prayer and make Jesus Lord and it would all be different from then on. It was kind of this one-time experience. That's not how it works. It's part of the daily fight of faith. And why? Because our flesh gravitates the other way. My flesh wants to go a different way. It doesn't want to submit to the Lordship. It doesn't like any of those 11 verses that I just read. Over time, what happens, I think, is Jesus subtly becomes not the love and treasure of our hearts, but a distant acquaintance who seems to be uninvolved in our lives and not tremendously relevant to our day-to-day living, but we run to him in trouble an awful lot like a therapist. Contrast that with the vision of Jesus from the Puritan preacher John Owen. Uh, This is from his work of the communion of God. It's a fairly lengthy quote, uh, so I'm just going to read it even with his kind of archaic Elizabethan English. So follow along if you can, but I think this just paints such a beautiful picture of the Lordship of Christ. He, that is Jesus, is gloriously exalted above angels in his authority, both good and bad angels, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in the one which is to come. They are all under his feet, at his command and absolute disposal. He is at the right hand of God in the highest exaltation possible and in full possession of a kingdom over the whole creation, having received a name above every name. Thus, he is glorious in his throne, which is at the right hand of the majesty on high. Glorious in his commission, which is all power in heaven and on earth. Glorious in his name, a name above every name. Lord of lords and King of kings. Glorious in his scepter, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. Glorious in his attendants. His chariots are 20,000, even thousands of angels. And among them he rideth on the heavens and sendeth out the voice of his strength attended with 10,000 times 10,000 of his holy ones, glorious in his subjects, all creatures in heaven and in earth. Nothing is left that is not put in subjection to him, glorious in his way of rule, in the administration of his kingdom, full of sweetness, efficacy, power, serenity, holiness, righteousness, and grace towards his elect but of terror, vengeance, and certain destruction toward the rebellious angels and men. Glorious in the issue of his kingdom, when every knee will bow before him, and all shall stand before his judgment seat. Now that's a picture of Jesus Christ on his throne, reigning as Lord. So Peter's call to us to set Christ apart as Lord is a call really to get back to our first love, to get back to that Jesus. A call to put Christ in his rightful place as Lord of all we are and all we do, 
a call to treasure him as the beautiful, gracious, loving, holy, awesome, eternal, powerful, prayer-answering God and Savior that he is. Now how, we were answering the question how, how does this help us in our fight for joy and fearlessness? Well, it keeps us fixed on Christ and not on the circumstances around us. So if you begin to see Jesus in this way that Owen just helped us with, the circumstances you're living through tend to fade. They tend to become small, even if you're suffering. It puts us back in the proper frame of mind that Christ is the sovereign Lord and is working all things for our good, even if that entails suffering and persecution for now. God is after something much bigger than our comfort. Now, our second question is why? Why should we be happy and fearless in the face of suffering? And Peter answers that with the exhortation in the second half of verse 15. So, first portion of verse 15 says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And then he goes on to say, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. So two things, I think, help us answer this why question. First, we have hope. We have hope. Why should we be happy and fearless in the face of suffering? Because we have hope. There's hope of the kingdom in our hearts. And setting Christ apart as Lord puts the king on the throne over his kingdom and us as his subjects. So it sets the whole universe back in the right order, the way things are supposed to be. And second, the pathway to experiencing this, even in suffering, is to see it as an apologetic. Now, that's the Greek word that's used here for defense. It's where we get the term apologetics from as a defense of the faith. And so what is the Holy Spirit telling us here? That we should all become experts in all the reasons for the faith? That we should study all the arguments defending the resurrection? the deity of Christ, the truthfulness of the Bible. Well, I certainly wouldn't criticize any of that. And in fact, I would commend to you that we all ought to have some knowledge of why we believe what we believe. But frankly, most unbelievers are not going to be converted by you having all your arguments in a row and winning the battle. Winning the argument will not convert people. <clears throat> so yes, get knowledge of these things, but... Unbelievers can know the answers to all those arguments. They can know all your answers, and it makes no difference. Here's what I think Peter means. When Christ is Lord of all we are, then we begin to see everything through the lens of his sovereign purposes for us. And that means that there's no suffering that can touch your life except by the sovereign will of God, that he wills it in some sense. Now, where do I get that? Look. Look down at verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So did you see it there? That little clause, if that should be God's will, so important, so important. Again, our minds struggle to get this concept. It's almost the default theology of every human being, of whatever religion they may be, that is that if I'm living the right way and doing the right things, then things ought to go smoothly for me. And the Christian version of this often comes out like this. If life is good and everything's well, then I must be in the will of God. 
But if trials and difficulties have come my way and I'm suffering, then I must somehow be out of the will of God and he's punishing me for something. That tends to be how our minds think. When suffering comes, something must be wrong. This was the theological framework of Job's comforters. This is the theological framework of the prosperity gospel. But God has many reasons why he might bring or allow suffering to touch our lives. God has, uh, and they don't, they don't all revolve around being punished for some sin. There are a lot of passages that teach very clearly that God wills and even calls his people to endure hardship for Christ's sake. I'm going to, here's just one. Philippians 1.29. For, listen to these three words. For it has been granted, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Uh, I think this is one of the most stunning verses on this topic in the whole Bible. Paul actually tells us that suffering for the sake of Christ is something that's been granted to us. It's been given to us like some gift. As if we've been given this really rare privilege, you know, kind of like... Well, you've been granted season-long access to the sidelines at every Vikings game. Uh, Or you've been granted a week-long vacation in Paris, free of charge. Is it that kind of granting? (laughs) Do you realize what a... Listen, do you realize what a privilege it is that you've been saved? That you believe in Christ? Only the gracious work of the Spirit, breaking down every resistance you have to the gospel... And granting you faith makes you a believer with all the kingdom privileges that go along with that. But just as equally, Paul says, you've been, it's been granted to you to suffer for his sake. So if suffering, so if, if you think it's a great privilege to be saved, you've got to understand suffering comes along with that. So we ought not to be surprised. When believers endure suffering for the sake of Christ, we should see it as an opportunity to show that Jesus is more to us than our reputation or our career because there are people who lose jobs because they stand for Christ and don't go along with the world. Or our friends, or maybe in some cases even our family, it becomes a chance to show that Jesus is more to us than what others think of us or what they say about us on Facebook and Twitter. Jesus said, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, Beelzebul was the name for Satan. So listen, if they called Jesus the devil, can we expect to be treated any differently? We ought not to expect anything different. It doesn't take a prophet to see that we're probably nearing the end of the time of comfort and ease for Christians in our society. And I sometimes wonder if God has brought this current historic difficulties of pandemics and riots in the streets and economic recession and so forth on us to test his church as much as to judge the world. So how are we doing in the test, folks? Do we divide with one another over politics and pandemic responses? Is that reflecting Jesus as Lord? 
Are we looking to politicians and the Supreme Court for answers to these problems? Have we forgotten that we're citizens of a different kingdom? Have we forgotten that America is not our home? Have we forgotten that our entire civilization could crumble like the Roman Empire tomorrow and nothing would change in relation to Christ and his kingdom? Nothing would change. He would still be on the throne and our identity would still be found in him. What if God is shaking his church to set us free from dependence on the things of this world, like even governments and policies and, listen, even freedom and democracy, things we say we love. What if he wants us to set us free from all of that? Will we still love Jesus if all of that comes crashing down? Will Jesus still be Lord of our lives if our whole world changes and hostility toward Christianity grows? Might the test for the church in these days be, where is your hope, O Christian? Nothing makes a defense for the glory of Christ and his supreme worth more than for us to suffer for his sake and in the midst of that be joyful and fearless. But we're not only after joyful fearlessness, we're after responding in a right and godly way. Part of Getting that joy and fearlessness in the face of suffering is to respond rightly to that suffering. When we respond to suffering in the right way, people will be curious. It arouses their curiosity. Listen, nothing frustrates persecutors more than when they oppose us and we give a happy, loving response to that reviling. This is why Peter instructs us that our defense should be done with a certain attitude. He says it should be done with gentleness and respect. This gentleness is listed as one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23. It means meekness. Respect is the same word translated fear back in verse 14. And obviously in this context it refers to a reverence and respect. So listen, we meet reviling and slander with meekness and respect. That's an unbeatable combination, folks. And boy, will it arouse the curiosity of those who see it because it's exactly the opposite of the reaction they're expecting. And some will want to know, how can you respond like that to such treatment? And right there, right there is your chance to make an apologetic for Jesus. That's your chance to make a defense for the hope that's in you. Notice in verse 16 that it says responding in this way will give us a good conscience. Now, why is that? Because when you respond like Jesus did, you know you're in the will of God. Nothing creates a clean conscience in our hearts like, no, we're walking in the way that Jesus wants us to walk. We're, we're responding the way he wants us to respond. Jesus did that. He didn't revile when he, in return when he was reviled. And doing the same thing as he does makes him look good. And that's what glorifying Christ means. Make him look good. Notice what else such a response does. It puts those who revile us to shame. Now, I'm not sure uh, whether Peter means that they'll be ashamed in this life or at the judgment. Perhaps it's both. Perhaps some will feel shame in this life and that will serve to draw them to Christ. 
but certainly all of them will feel shame at the final judgment. It is God who will soon set to right any wrong that we suffer, so we can safely leave that with him. But a gentle and respectful response to those who don't deserve it is a powerful witness. It's a powerful witness. Far more powerful than winning arguments. So when you've set Christ as Lord in your hearts, it makes you more concerned with God's agenda in a given situation, such as suffering, people persecuting you, than with your own rights or comfort or security. And God's agenda is that you would bear witness to a better world, a better kingdom. Now, what do we do with all this? How do we practice? How do we apply this? And I think Peter's application in the passage is directly to suffering for the sake of Christ. Right? That's pretty obvious. The application is clear. It's not easy, but it's clear. Now, we're just beginning to feel the heat turned up in our culture, and we're struggling, at least I am, to reorient our thinking, to reorient ourselves to living in a culture that's kind of more like Sodom or more like Israel in the days of the judges when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Setting Christ apart as Lord means getting our minds used to this idea that we will be the objects of reviling and derision. And if Jesus really is Lord in our hearts, we'll see that all of that is part of God's sovereign plan to give us a platform to witness to his lordship by responding with love to their hate. So don't run from this reorientation in your thinking. Um, it, it's the Spirit's work in our hearts, so engage with it. Don't try to stop it. Don't fight it. Make it your first thought each day when you get up that Jesus is Lord of this day and all that it brings, whether pain or pleasure. And it may just give you an opportunity to make a gentle, winsome defense of the hope you have to others. But now I want to ask the question, what about other kinds of suffering? Is, is, does this just apply to persecution? Or can it be applied to other types of suffering, like cancer or some other serious health issue? Or like a difficult marriage to a spouse who mistreats you or is unfaithful? Or to an exhausted mother sitting up at 2 a.m. with a sick child trying to find the energy to go on? Does anything here apply to these kinds of suffering, what we might consider, I hate to use the word ordinary suffering, but just the kind of suffering we encounter, no matter what's going on in the culture around us, no matter whether they like us or not, whether Christianity is favored or not? Or is it just for when people are calling us names and slandering us and silencing us for the sake of our faith? I do think there's application for other types of suffering here. In fact, I think Peter hints at it when he says that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, down in verse 17. I think that the hint there is that the only suffering that isn't covered by what he's saying is suffering for doing evil. If you're suffering for that, sorry, you're enduring the consequences of your own actions. Now, God has purposes in that too, but that's not what Peter is addressing. What if we saw cancer 
or the death of a loved one, as we've just seen, or the loss of a child in the womb, or a sickness, or a difficult handicapped child, or the rejection of a friend. What if we saw it not as a burden and a frightening thing, but a chance to show the sufficiency of Christ to sustain hope in the midst of hard things. A chance to show that our few brief years of life on this earth are only a drop in the bucket compared to the eternity that God has prepared for us. I think it's legitimate to see any suffering that's encountered in the normal course of seeking to live a godly life as suffering for Christ in some way. Listen, at the very least, Satan wants to use it to destroy your faith. He wants to get you to question God's goodness or question even his existence. He wants to pull you away from Christ. That, that's his intention with suffering. But God has purposes for that suffering or he wouldn't have allowed it into your life. And right here in this passage is one of those purposes to give you a chance to show to others how wonderful and sufficient Jesus is and how temporary and light these momentary afflictions in this life are. There's a greater glory to come. And when others see that kind of hope, they're going to want to know why. That's the whole point of the passage. So how do we fight for joyful fearlessness in the face of suffering? any kind of righteous suffering set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts including of the suffering and respond to it with an attitude that reflects that of our Lord and why should we do that the other question because this is going to send the aroma of Christ all over the place and those whom the Spirit is drawing to himself will want to know about that kind of hope Let's pray. Father in heaven, is Jesus Lord over each heart in here right now? Would we count it a joy, a privilege to endure hardship for your sake? when we're in the valley of the shadow of death, when the tears are coming down, when we might lose our job because we're Christians, because we stand for biblical morality or stand for the truth of the gospel. Oh Lord, I pray that we would respond rightly our flesh wants to go the other way. Our flesh wants to, to stand up for our rights. And I pray that you'd change our thinking, change our hearts, change our minds in such a way that the first response is to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. First response when suffering comes in, even if it's sickness or some other struggle, our first response would be, this is from your hand, Lord, and you want me to bear witness to your goodness in the midst of it. So it's not wrong for us to ask for healing for sickness. 
not wrong for us to ask for you to change our circumstances, but sometimes you want us in those very circumstances to show just how wonderful you are and to allow these light momentary afflictions to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we ask for this change of mind, this shift of heart, this paradigm shift that we need, Lord. Help us. Help us. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.